Today, I sit down with Michael Gelb, who's one of the world's leading authorities on the application of genius thinking to personal and organizational development. Uh, Michael really is a pioneer in the fields of creative thinking, innovative leadership, and executive coaching. I mean, he's got clients like DuPont, Nike, Microsoft, and YPO. And he dives into some of the best practices that he's used for himself and for big organizations like that just to become more attuned with our own creativity, to get more ideas, to really take those ideas into implementation as well. And one of the other ways and the reasons I first came across Michael was actually his research into Leonardo da Vinci, who's one of my favorite thinkers of all time. And Michael wrote a book, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. And he uncovers the seven timeless strategies that he's uncovered that Leonardo did that we can all do. And we go through some of the timeless lessons he's learned. But what I also enjoy so much about this conversation is we really explore so much of Michael's thinking and some of the things that he's done. An example of that, not only has he studied these geniuses and worked with great organizations, but he's also a fifth degree Aikido black belt. And we talk a lot about the foundational lessons that you can take from Aikido to apply to your own life. So if you want a really fun, fascinating conversation uh, that's going to open up your own creative potential, you'll love this conversation with Michael Gill. What got you there? What got you, got you, what got you there? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is just a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitzkin, Michael Jordan, Bob Iger, Bruce Lee, Nick Saban, and many more. I also have 50-plus book recaps of my favorite reads. So you can find everything I just mentioned and more at whatgotyouthere.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called You Unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now, You Unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. Michael, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Fabulous. Great to be with you. Thanks. I'm so excited to dive into so many different elements of what you do and what you've done. And just the way you think is something I appreciate. But one of the things I really appreciate, Michael, that you do is you understand the importance of getting in the right state prior to a certain event, right? Like we have our best ideas when we're in the shower or walking in nature. Um, same thing before a big performance, you've got to be in the right set of mind. So just prior to an event like this, or even getting up on stage speaking, something you do a lot of, what are you doing to get your energy right and be ready for that moment? It's a wonderful question because if you think about it, we're always getting ready for something. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you get ready for getting ready? Yeah. Because, In other words, you're attuned to the notion that 
there's a rhythm to things, that there's a harmony to things, there's a flow to things, and you want to be attuned to that flow. So rather than just answering, here's my technique or my method, which seems something taken really out of context, because what you're really talking about is the flow of my whole life and sense that one of my, one of my favorite quotes is uh, from Frank Zappa uh, who said (laughs) from the mothers of invention, a group from the the sixties. And he said, in the battle between you and the universe, I'm betting on the universe. (laughs) So the question is, What's happening with the flow of the universe and how can you surf that? How can you ride that wave most uh, joyously and intelligently? So that's the big picture, uh, long-winded answer. The short answer is I surrender everything to call it the divine, call it the universe, the higher self, whatever you like, before I do anything. You used a phrase there a minute ago, just just surfing. And I'm wondering how you think about that, right? Like so much of life are these paradoxes and the unknowns. And how have you gotten more attuned and better able to surf the unknowns? Well, it's giving up the illusion that you control everything. <laughs> well, wait, well, well, how long did it take you to, to understand that? <laughs> I'm still working on it. I still want to be in control. <laughs> but then the universe crushes you down and says, I don't think so. Not likely. So, but it's learned, it is discerning where it's appropriate for you to be assertive, to take action, to make a plan, to follow through, to be persistent and focused and committed to the achievement of a particular goal and when it's appropriate to shift out of what you thought you knew and and change and be flexible and make a a different plan and and that well that's the fourth principle for thinking like leonardo da vinci that is the principle of sfumato which means the ability to embrace uncertainty and ambiguity and find intuitive guidance when your logical analytical mind isn't quite sufficient for the complexity of the circumstances in your life at the moment. It's funny you mentioned that about being okay and even embracing the unknown. Uh, It's funny how that thinking through Leonardo gets played out over time. Even someone like Abraham Maslow and all the self-actualized people he, he studied, he brings that up. That the 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 likability of the unknown it's something that almost turns them on. I, I am wondering. You mentioned just the different rhythms and, and the timing and inserting your assertiveness or, or really when to push the pedal or when to step back. How do you weigh that? Because I think so many people they get in tuned with let's call it like the Taoist thinking of like Wu Wei. It's like well we're just gonna let things unfold naturally, and then other people are like no you got to go go go. Um, and I'm just wondering how you think about that. Uh, well, I think what you just described that's. That's a continuum. That's the the continuum from yin and to yang. And some people's nature is more yin. It's more receptive. It's more passive. It's more patient. It's quieter. Uh, they're better listeners. Other people are more yang in their nature. They're more focused. They're more assertive. They're more 
likely to impose their will on a situation. And really the ultimate wisdom was expressed by George Costanza in Seinfeld when he said, always do the opposite. <laughs> because whatever your proclivity is in order to be balanced, you need to cultivate the opposite. And, and then you can have the harmony of that, that yin and yang. So if your nature is more yang, which mine is, I'm naturally a very assertive, even aggressive. You know, un, if I was unschooled, uh, I'd just be aggressive. <laughs> but you're looking at you know, 50 years of working on myself uh, to, find, to find that harmony. So I consciously cultivated over the years, the ability to be receptive, to listen, to be patient, uh, to allow things to unfold, and to spend time. And I let nature be my teacher. I was just telling some buddies of mine yesterday that one of my favorite practices over the years, which just happened spontaneously, is when I notice that I'm just watching the clouds move in the sky. And I happened to be that happened yesterday for an extended period of time, and I was, I was in this blissful state, and I was in a, a quiet, peaceful, very attuned modality. When I then met with a, a client and was able to be of service to that client, and say, "Oh my God, that's so brilliant! You're so intuitive. How did you know that?" And it's not even a big deal because there is this vast source of wisdom that everybody knows about. But the question is, how do you get access to it? Well, you don't have access to it when you're in the yang mode. You have to be receptive. But then if you're going to do something with it, it helps to be able to shift into that mode. And, you, you know, you might have all these great ideas, but you have to actually get it together and run your podcast and invite the guests and set everything up and make it happen and then have your website and do all the stuff you need to do and follow through with clients. It's not just good enough to say, oh, well, I'm in, in tune with all these great minds and great thinkers. Isn't that cool? I mean, maybe it is if you just, somebody's endowing you to sit on a mountaintop for the rest of your life. But for the rest of us who have to actually work for a living, we need the balance. <laughs> no, no, it, I mean, it's such a great point, right? Like the the implementation of the ideas. That's that's where so many of us get caught up on. You used a phrase a minute ago I actually want to dive into before we get into the implementation is consciously cultivate. And I know you work with a lot of people, um, a lot of great executives, a lot of Fortune 100 companies, but I'm wondering for you personally, what have you done over the years to consciously cultivate and develop greater self-awareness? What has been foundational for you? The most foundational practices for me have been the FM Alexander technique, which I started studying in 1974, and Tai Chi, Qigong, and Aikido, which I've studied intensively and have taught now for many, many years. The art of juggling. I worked my way through graduate school as a professional juggler, and learning to juggle was a, a fabulous teaching in getting out of the way. Because go, you yeah, go further there. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to, I, I always, I have juggling balls always here at my desk and in between clients, I just, I'm, I'm often juggling. <laughs> and you notice that the juggling pattern is the infinity pattern. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that and lots of other disciplines and, 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 and so on. But I'd say, I'd say the, the greatest influence has been, 
the blessing of some of the extraordinary people I've been able to spend time with, either real people or virtual people. You know, you mentioned Maslow, and Maslow was one of my heroes when I was a teenager. I read Toward the Psychology of Being, and it was one of the seminal books for my life. And Rollo May, uh, Victor Frankl, those are books I read when I was a teenager, and they set me on a course, uh, Carl Jung. Uh, so, and then I, I, I met extraordinary teachers from a, a range of different traditions. I spent a year with uh, meditating with a Buddhist monk, Cambodian Buddhist monk, and with this English guy who was a master of multiple spiritual traditions and with fabulous uh, Aikido senseis and Taiji masters and just extraordinary people from different walks of life. And I got to tell you, I'm super blessed because the maybe the most influential best people happen to be my mom and dad who are 95 and 91 live a, you know, a little while from here and we go visit them all the time and hang out with them and, they're as funny as they can be. And here they are married for 71 years. I mean, who do you know who has parents who are married for 71 years, love each other, are funny, great to be with, and, and give their almost 70-year-old son a check on his birthday? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, so, so I realized the older I've gotten, the more real, I just realized how blessed I am to have the parents that I have. Have you always been that attuned to just understanding what the blessings are in your own life? Uh, no. <laughs> so so no, why not? Uh, because I, I, I always wanted more and always had a sense of dissatisfaction that drove me to want more, to achieve more, and so on and so forth. And it took me a while to really embrace gratitude in, in, in a deep way. I, I, I'd say that I was, and to some extent still am, a driven person, that I, I just have an intensity of energy. And my, you know, I, I came out, my mom says that when I was born, she said it was the greatest moment of her life, which is a nice thing for your mother to say, but she also said she had no idea what to do with me. <laughs> she said the energy was so intense. She just had no idea what to do with me. So for years, I had no idea what to do with me either, which is why I started studying all this stuff. And, and that's especially why, for me, the martial arts and the, the arts, especially of Aikido and, and Taiji, where you take that intensity of energy and you learn to harmonize it. You learn to express it, but then in a harmonious way rather than in a violent way. And, and you know, I pursued those disciplines and continue to practice those disciplines on a daily basis because they shift, they harmonize my the rough edges of my endowment and help help me feel the sense of connectedness with the universe and love and peace and compassion and gratitude, but it's a work in progress. 
I mean, we're, we're always becoming, right? Uh, big time, big time. So I, I want to dive into what you mentioned, kind of like those didn't even know what to do with yourself for years. But before we do that, I, w- I would love to dive a bit further into Aikido and Tai Chi. And it's, sure. this is not just something you've dabbled with, right? Like you're you're a black belt in Aikido, correct? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fifth degree black belt in Aikido, yes. yes. So, so talk me through some of these foundational principles. I, I have no experience in Aikido. But I, I'm envious of the art form and what you talked about, understanding the amount of energy that you've got to channel in the right way. And I'm just wondering some of the principles that you've taken that have been applicable, not just to Aikido or Tai Chi, but that have been applicable to your own life outside of that. Sure. Sure. Well, Aikido, let's just back it up for people so they know what we're talking about, is a, a Japanese discipline created by Morihai Ueshiba, who was already a master of multiple martial arts and a force to be reckoned with when he had an extraordinary enlightenment experience where he realized that the essence of martial art is really to protect life, that it is to nurture and protect life, not to hurt and destroy others, that the fighting part of it, the winning part of it was if you sourced where that really came from, essentially, it was a protective spirit to protect and nurture life. And that the most powerful forces are the forces of nature, so that if one could become in one's movement and in one's martial practice, like the wind, like the water, uh, that one would, would harness much greater power than you can just by pounding on a rock for a while. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what's fascinating is uh, he became remarkably well-known in in Japan. Uh, He had many, many students. And I studied directly with his original students. Hmm. Unfortunately, he passed away when I was three, about three years old, but uh, a little older than that. But uh, um, but I studied with his direct students, uh, and a lot of his direct students were very tough, strong, accomplished martial artists, karate masters, uh, sword and spear fighting masters, jujitsu masters from all sorts of different traditions. And they came and studied with this five, actually four foot 11 uh, older guy who had this amazing philosophy of everything is connected, love, peace, harmony, all this good stuff. Why do you think they studied with him? Because he could wipe the floor with them. (laughs) So that's what impressed me was, you know, I'd studied Gandhi and I'd studied the world's spiritual traditions. And I was very impressed with what seemed to be the ability to embody these spiritual principles in a conflict. Because anybody can say they're all about love and peace and harmony when you're getting along. But when someone attacks you, whether it's physically or more likely in our everyday lives, verbally, psychologically, emotionally, your boss at work, you know, gives you a hard time about something or you're, partner knows how to press your buttons or your kids or whoever it happens to be. And how do you respond in that moment? So Aikido has three fundamental 
principles, center, blend, and lead. So center really simply, today people call it mindfulness or presence, but if you're not centered, if you're not present, if you're not mindful, you will react automatically. You'll react from your reptilian brain. You'll react, this is my territory. You'll make the situation worse. So I have, this is Gelb's first law of conflict management, which is don't make it worse. Don't make it worse, right? So, So to be centered, and centered is not just some metaphysical notion. It's literally to be aligned around your vertical axis, to have your feet on the floor so that you feel fully supported and connected to the earth, and to have your your mind, your heart, and your core life energy centers literally physically and energetically in alignment. So there are many, many practices for facilitating that centeredness of body, mind, and spirit. And coincidentally, but not really, maybe the greatest of them is a Western methodology called the FM Alexander Technique. So you see how this stuff all comes together. So First, you have to learn to be centered, and that might mean practicing. It could be meditating for 20 minutes a day, uh, doing a Tai Chi or Qigong practice, so you're, uh, a mindfulness or meditation practice, because you have to invest in this. You have to invest in having – Viktor Frankl talked about this, the space between stimulus and response, and he said what makes us uniquely human is that we have this space – between the automatic movement from stimulus to response. We can shift or change or consider options or pause or breathe and choose to do nothing until the new path or creative path opens forth. But if you don't pause, you go right into your reptilian brain. So centering is the ability to pause, be in that space. And it's a psychophysiological discipline that we can all cultivate. And and I've spent the last 50 years figuring out the most efficient ways to do that, practicing them myself and teaching them to others. The genius of Aikido, because but every tradition, every system says to be centered. You know, if, if I am a if I am a, a an ultimate fighter and I just want to kick your butt, I'm still better at doing that if I'm centered. Yeah. Uh, so whatever. If I'm a street fighter, if I'm a mugger. A centered mugger will do a better job of mugging than an uncentered mugger, <laughs> right? So there's no comment yet on my uh, ethical or moral <laughs> compass. But the, the true genius of Aikido is is the is blend, and what blend in in everyday life terms, what we're talking about there is empathy and love and compassion. So in the moment of conflict be centered, pause, and to the extent that it's possible, look at the world from the point of view of the other. Because somebody went to Ramana Maharshi, the great spiritual teacher, and said, how should I treat others? And he said, there are no others. Hmm. And this is the teaching of all the most enlightened beings that we're all one, all life is connected. Easy to say, but hard to practice when somebody cuts you off in traffic. Uh, uh, uh. So. Empathy in the moment. Uh, and this, you know, this is, forget about the person who cuts you off or, or a nasty person at work. Just, let's just start with your, your, 
wife or your husband, your brother, your sister, your children, your mom, your dad, your neighbors, your friends. Because that, you know, most murders in the U.S. are people killing people they know and say they love. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and by the way, the Harvard Negotiation Project, classic book, Getting to Yes, they came up with two key characteristics of the best negotiators all over the world in the most difficult situations. They're empathic listeners, and then they invent options for mutual gain. Hmm. So that's what we do in Aikido. First, we're centered, because otherwise you can't do that. Then we blend, we empathize, we look at the perspective, the needs, the, the underlying needs, not the position, but the underlying needs of the other stakeholders in any given situation. And then when we know what their needs are, then we have hope of finding some way to meet their needs while also meeting our own needs. That's another way of saying we come up with a win-win solution. Uh, but now you, have, you, know, you get that from a more uh, a deeper perspective, not just some trite phrase that people throw around and don't really know what they're talking about, which is quite quite common. So you run into so that center, <laughs> center, blend, lead, uh, uh, and then in every so in every Aikido technique, and this is where it's so cool, is somebody comes to punch you in the face. So if you go like this, uh, you just get punched in the face. If you run away and they're bigger and faster than you, they'll track you down and then punch you in the face. If you think you're bigger and stronger than them, you might, or, or have a longer reach, you might just haul off and hit punch them before they hit you. And then maybe you've got a lawsuit you've got to deal with. So what Aikido says is, uh, ah, someone's coming to punch me in the face. How fascinating. I think I'll get my face out of the way and let the punch go past me. And I'll look at the, the situation from that person's point of view, which puts me in a safe position. And then we can consider other options for reconciling. And the person's amazing how much more flexible and open to negotiation the person is when you're suddenly behind them. And they're in a vulnerable position where you could hurt them, but you choose not to because you've made a commitment to this higher ethical way of being, which is to try to protect people and recognize that when people lose it, when they're being unpleasant in some way, they usually have some issue, some problem, some challenge. If we knew what's really driving people, we'd, we'd often feel compassion. For them, so it, it it's based on that. That's the understanding. Center, blend, lead. That's the essence of Aikido. Well, you just gave us a, a masterclass there in setting the, the framework. And, and you mentioned the founder of Aikido. Uh, going through your work, just preparing for this, I ended up picking up a few of his books. If anyone wants to dive further, anything you would recommend as an entry point, whether it be a book or something like that, just to get a better understanding of these foundational principles. Well, what I would recommend uh, you do is just just go to an Aikido dojo near where you live and watch a class. Because yeah. it's just to watch it in action. I mean, you can see great stuff too on YouTube. Uh, there's actual, the real original films of O-sensei, that's uh, not because he was Irish, but O-sensei <laughs> means, oh, O-sensei, top of the morning. No, O-sensei means great, uh, great grandmaster teacher. If, if you just go on YouTube uh, or Vimeo and look for, O-sensei Morihai Ueshiba, or Aikido founder, you can see 
the original film of him, some of which is he's in his 70s and 80s and he's throwing around these younger guys. And the younger guys in that film are some of the great grandmasters of the world today, a number of whom I, I've had the privilege of studying with. This has me intrigued. Obviously, you can already see how how wide ranging both of our interests are based on the on the start of this conversation. But but I'm intrigued of you mentioned some of these different skill sets, and obviously that Aikido master. There's a path towards mastery, and you've been able to tackle mastery in a number of different domains. You obviously studied Leonardo at great length, who's over your shoulder there, who became a master. What have you found as I have him right here too in person? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> what what have you discovered within, within your own self in terms of developing your path to mastery, no matter what the domain it is? For me, it, it it's just comes back to what we discussed earlier about being attuned to what what is the natural flow of things, what what is my deeper wisdom guiding me towards and being quiet enough to listen to that instead of constantly doing and achieving. And so it's, it's for me, the, the key is spending enough time being receptive. Hmm. Uh, and so I've learned, you know, I've, I've surrendered to that and learned to enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you mean yeah. by this? I know Leonardo. I'm trying to think of the exact line. It was something like the the best artists actually end up working less. Is this what you're referring to? It, that's exactly right. He said. He said, "Men of genius sometimes work best when they work least." There you go. Yeah. And and but everybody, this is this is not just some woo woo mystical thing or things for Leonardo and great geniuses. This is everybody knows this. Everybody will tell you if you ask them which I've done now for 40 or 50 years around the world, where are you when you get your best ideas? Where are you actually physically located? And number one answer is the shower, driving my car, walking in nature, uh, after meditating, wake up at four o'clock in the morning. No one gets their best ideas at work uh, or on the internet. Uh, they might stimulate their thinking and their mind towards those ideas, but we get our, our best ideas when we're in that receptive, relaxed state. And usually when we're by ourselves, so that there's no fear of embarrassment of, of saying something silly or wrong. Mm -hmm. So one of the absolute simplest methodologies for helping to cultivate one's Da Vincian genius is just begin to record those ideas that you get when you're in that more receptive state. And, you know, I, and so I, I do uh, leadership coaching uh, for executives from all kinds of businesses all over the world. And they, a lot of times they ask me to come in and lead retreats for them. They're working on an issue or a problem or the strategy or mission or new product development or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and getting them to integrate breaks into the meetings and taking them out for walks, teaching them a little bit of Qigong, teaching them how to juggle. In the night, I get them to drink some wine, and, and we have a poetry slam, which goes much better after they drank the wine. Uh, and they, they invariably report, we were so much more productive. We were so much more creative. 
We bonded and connected so much more than we normally do, but we had way more fun mm. than we've ever had before. So that's how you know, I take all this and translate this into the world of, of, of work and business. And you, you, did you used to work for Nike? Yeah, I did. Yeah, because they were a client of mine. Yep. Uh, for a number of years, all sorts of really cool groups of, and talk about hard driving, very competitive people. That culture was really like that. Uh, so it's very hard to get people to recognize the importance of pausing, being receptive. <laughs> <laughs> not, not always easy with that group. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I charged extra. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I met, I met Phil Knight when I was there once. Uh, I was in the cafeteria and uh, he was great because uh, the guy who was hosting my seminar took me over to meet him. And he said, Phil, this is uh, Michael Gelb. He's the author of How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. And Phil doesn't miss a beat. He says, ah, well, uh, uh, how about How to Think Like Phil Knight, the world's, <laughs> the world's smallest book? <laughs> That's very funny. He, very clever. He he is a comedian, and he, he also incredibly yeah. hard charger. His uh his book yeah. Shoe Dog yeah. take, takes through the entire yeah. story. One of the things you were saying a uh, a minute ago um was around kind of protecting your ideas and being alone, not suffering that fear of embarrassment. Are you familiar with Johnny Ive, the legendary Apple um product designer? He he created the iPhone, the I Mac. I know. I was just listening to a, a talk he did, and he he talked about that. He said early on, I would not bring my ideas to Steve Jobs. Because he Smart. could crush them, and he said they're, they're right. like they're like little infant babies. Like you need to protect right. them and nurture them. These right. ideas, and, and he talks about like the need to create that free space and, and let the mind go. I, I'm now intrigued, though, I, I know you've studied just a lot around the creative mindset. What what else do you see that the best who tap into that creative mindset? What are they doing? Well, what's what's wonderful is let's just use the what's the name of that guy, Johnny Ive. Yeah, Johnny Ive. Okay, great. So each of us has an internal Johnny Ive and a potential internal Steve Jobs. Uh, and the secret is to compartmentalize them so that you let your idea generator, free spirit, no wrong answers, part of your mind thrive and flow in a safe space. Then you take a break and you go for a walk. Then you come back and you say, okay, we're bringing in Steve and we're going to tear this to shreds. Then you tear it to shreds because if you don't tear your idea to shreds before you release it, yeah. reality <laughs> will always tear it to shreds for you. But you learn to do this consciously. Then you say, okay, let's bring in some other perspectives. Let's look at the strengths of the idea, the weaknesses of the idea. Then let's consciously take a break and sleep on it because we all know we have better ideas when we sleep on it. Well, Michael, that's one of the, that's one of the foundational things you try to do when doing workshops, right? Like you require that sleep time. Yeah. Just, we've just weave that into it because it's like we said before, Men of genius sometimes work best when they work least. So understanding what that rhythm is. There's a time, in other words, and this is classic, you know, this is uh, to everything, there is a season. And that's true with our own mind when in the process of creativity. 
So there is a time for execution. There's a time for implementation. A lot of endeavors never happen because there's visionaries who have all these great ideas, but they don't put them through the devil's advocate process. And then if they, even if they do that, they don't have a strong plan for implementation. They don't drive it through to completion. So, but you can see these are different modalities. Frequently, uh, many people just do one of these things. You know, people who just, I'm just about implementation. Just tell me what to do. I'll get it done. I don't want to be involved in the strategy or the, I, there's other people who just want to generate ideas and they're super creative, but they don't want to talk about getting anything done. And then there's other people who just want to tear down everybody else's ideas. They say, let me play devil's advocate. And if you have those people just interacting randomly, chaotically, you have a very inefficient <laughs> and unintelligent organization. But if you recognize that these are archetypes, these are roles, these are modalities, these are characters, and you have to orchestrate these characters into an ensemble designed to bring you the best possible creation. And then recognize that you have all those characters in yourself. So ask yourself, which one is my weakest? How can I strengthen it? Which one is overdeveloped? How can I calm it down a little bit? So as I told you, I wasn't kidding about George Costanza. Always do the opposite of what your natural tendency is. So, you know, I, I had a client in New York a while ago. And they started out, they were a construction management company. They broke away from the biggest construction management company. And they started their own company. They said, we can do it better, faster, make more money for ourselves. And they launched this thing. It was amazing. They were, they went from nowhere to being the seventh biggest construction management company in New York City. But then they were hitting the proverbial wall because they couldn't attract and retain the kind of people that they needed to be a bigger company because they were all such hard charging, work around the clock, crazy maniacs. And you can't, you you can find 12 people like that for a startup. You can't get 350 people like that uh, uh, and, and have a human resources department and because you start to have different kinds of people and they're not all like that and it's not sustainable. So they have to shift out of their habit. They have to change. And this is what, this is the kind of thing I try to help them, them do by by explaining this to them. <laughs> well, one of the things, Michael, that, that's obviously coming out right there is just the playful nature you have in everything you do. Can, can you hit on this? Because this is one of those things that I, I, I found that the people who, who do the best in the world, whatever it is they do, and I don't care what it is that they do, there's this playful nature of it. Uh, if it's not fun, I'm really not interested. Hmm. I mean... I I like to play. I like to have fun. I like to laugh. I think humor's very serious matter. <laughs> well, humor, humor and creativity go hand in hand. I call it the, the relationship between the the aha and the ha ha. Hmm. So they're both about shifting out of habitual patterns, habitual expectations. In a funny joke, you're led down a certain path, and then the punchline 
gives you an unexpected way of looking at the, the, the situation. There's a name for it. It's called incongruity theory. It's what makes things really funny, that they're juxtaposed in an incongruous way. And that's what a new idea is. It's something you didn't expect. It's a different perspective. And learning to cultivate that is, is supported by a sense of humor. Moreover, in, in the clients that I've been blessed to work with over the years, these are people dealing with very serious issues in terms of lots of money, uh, the well-being of many people, uh, thousands and thousands of employees, uh, and the pressure's on to make a big decision that affects a lot of lives. And the ones who are the best at it, I found always have had a sense of humor in the I, I'll tell you once. So I was. I went up. This guy was uh, in charge of a a pension fund for a, a multinational company. And at the time, I think they had about twenty billion dollars under his management. A fair amount of money. And this is a long time ago, so it's even more money. There would be even more money today. And this was. This was in the early 1990s that I, I walked into this guy's office and he had me waiting uh, in his, he had one of these mahogany desks and uh, leather couches, coffee, this old fashioned yeah. corporate mega office. Uh, and I was sitting there and he was on, he had a couple of different phone calls he had to take. He said, excuse me, I'll be right with you. And he picks up the phone and it was just, it was, it was well, uh, um, you know, put the $50 million in that portfolio, but uh, uh, do something, blah, blah, blah. And then a guy comes in the door, he says, how about the bond fund and, and the $90 million? And he says, wait till Tuesday and then do this, that, and the other. And so he's doing this stuff with mega amounts of money. And he turns to me in the middle of while I'm sitting there and he says to me, just like trading places, huh? Remember the Eddie Murphy yeah. movie? Which <laughs> just happened to be one of my favorite movies. Uh, and I thought, how cool that this guy, this is how this guy's able to do this, is in the midst of doing this, he, there's a part of him that even though he's very serious and totally devoted and was very, very successful in the course of his career, part of the reason why is he's able to laugh at himself in the midst of doing it all and not take it overly seriously. I One of my... Uh, statements I made early on uh, was that over seriousness is a warning sign of mediocrity. Hmm. Now, now you've really got me intrigued. So this is, this is a, uh, a problem someone reached out to me with recently and it's around their boss is one of those hard chargers literally does not turn it off. And they said, my, my biggest thing I have to do, I've got to manage my manager. And it's just like, how have you seen people in organizations where top leadership is just like those tenacious, never stop, never let off other people. Is that a solvable problem? Sure, sure. Because you, you know, we can't directly change other people, but we can manage our own response. Hmm. And it comes back to center, blend, lead. The chances are that when your boss is 
charging in that way and on your case and so you've lost your center so this whole conversation is irrelevant because we can't help you if you're not centered you can't help yourself so your first practice will be how can you maintain your center in the face of that onslaught so you know, practice that and then come back and see me and we'll, we'll work on strategies from there because without that it's just a theoretical conversation yeah and i literally you know i do I, i'm coaching these executives on zoom over the last few years and i had this one guy who was a ceo but he was caught in the middle of the executive chairman of of the company uh, the biggest uh, investor in the company uh, and the strategic advisory board of this this company and they were all pressuring him in a very difficult very challenging situation and we're you know we're doing this on zoom it's me and another coach that's how much work this took they had two high level professional coaches trying to get this team together so i'm looking at the ceo while their onslaught is coming at him. And it's great. The great thing about doing it on, on Zoom is I see him like this. His body language is just showing me he's, he's not centered. And when people see that you're not centered, when they see that your body language is saying, I, I'm not quite able to deal with this, they come at you harder. So I'm just, you know, the great thing, I'm, I'm sending him private messages. Align yourself around the vertical axis. Yeah. Exhale and smile. And I'm, I'm not making this up. He does what I tell him and they start treating him differently. Now, it's not always just that simple, but it's a, it's a good place to start. Yeah. Everything yeah. starts yeah, I, I think that's for for me like the biggest takeaway is, is that 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 centeredness and everything else is is almost irrelevant unless you get that correct. So, Michael, I, I really appreciate that. So, what the entry point to you for me uh, was years ago reading the book How to Think Like Leonardo Vinci. Da Vinci. Okay. Do you do you have something? No, uh, sorry, carry on. Yeah, yeah. So, no. I'm thrilled it was Da Vinci that was the original. So Da Vinci, so I, I always ask the guests, like if they could do this long form conversation, sit down with anyone dead or alive, like who would they love to do that with? And for me, it's Da Vinci, right? Like the, the blend of art, science, like even the, the physical element and how he thought about like movement and stuff like that. I, I just endlessly fascinated by. So, so your book, I just appreciated the heck out of. And I, I knew it came out 20 plus years ago. I was unaware it just about to be 25 years. Is there anything though that you now with more experience might have not put in the book? based on what Da Vinci did? I have to tell you that uh, you know, I reread my books from time to time. And whenever one creates a book or a video or anything, one tends to be super critical of it and say, oh my God, has this stood the test of time or is this irrelevant or is this dated or is this... Uh, I'm thrilled with it. Hmm, that's awesome. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think it stands up really well. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, uh, I, I was getting to revisit it just for this conversation, and, and yeah. it's just—I mean—it's filled with unlimited number of exercises, things like that that you can do, and great insights into Da Vinci. Um, but I, I would love to start going down this Da Vinci rabbit hole because there's there's a line that Leonardo Da Vinci serves as a global archetype of human potential, giving us yes. intimations of what we ourselves may be capable of doing. And I love this line so much because I think so many of us block our potential from the start. Um, and I would love for you to just expand on the potential we all have and, and what you saw come through for Da Vinci. Sure, thank you. Well, I'm glad you tuned into that line because you know, when I was growing up, Leonardo was one of my heroes. My, my grandma, Rosa, was Italian and she was an artist. And she told me about Leonardo da Vinci. And he seemed like Superman, who was my other hero when I was a kid. And I remember when I found out Superman was just a comic book character, but Leonardo was actually real. And that line that you resonated with is an expression of the fact that, yes, people around the world resonate with Leonardo. He touches something in the human spirit. He's, he's more popular, more in the news now. There are there's another movie coming out about him. There are books constantly being written, new biographies and his relationship with Michelangelo. And, and one of his works was recently rediscovered and then sold for $450 million, yeah. the most ever paid by far for, for a work of art. So how is it that 550 years later, we're still all talking about Leonardo? I mean, there are other great geniuses of that period. Michelangelo is known as the divine Michelangelo. His work is unparalleled in terms of, you know, especially his sculpture, uh, the Sistine Chapel, Chapel, something of note. But as a character, he doesn't appeal to us as much because he was not a happy person. And if you go, if you go to the Sistine Chapel, there's uh, the Last Judgment painting. So that the uh, you look up at the ceiling. That's what everybody pays attention to. Adam uh, receiving uh, chi from from God, but on the wall in front of you is The Last Judgment, also by Michelangelo, and it's a horrifying painting. There's this giant Christ figure uh, uh, giving the thumbs up to the people who are going up to heaven and the thumbs down to the people who are going down to hell, and hanging on a, a kind of branch coming out of nowhere just above hell is a the flayed skin of a corpse. That's Michelangelo's self-portrait. Hmm. <laughs> that was his self-image. So, you know, we don't, that doesn't kind of make me want to get up in the morning and say, I want to be like Michelangelo. <laughs> but da Vinci was renowned for his charm, for his good looks, for his great physique, for his sense of humor, for his athleticism, for his musicality, for his poetry for his love of nature 
And so he naturally, we naturally aspire to, wow, wouldn't it be cool to be able to express all of these abilities and talents to, to be able to do music? I wish I could do music. You know, my wife is a professional musician. But here's the thing I've learned too, which is also something that, that I think can be very helpful to people. And it is, you don't have to be the creator to have the fulfillment of the artistic experience. All you really need to do is appreciate the creation. And by fully appreciating the creation, you meet the creator because the creation comes to life when it's being appreciated. Mm -hmm. So if you appreciate great music or great painting or great poetry, you are becoming one with the creative genius, the creative force through which that happened to manifest. You know, we give credit to Leonardo because he painted The Last Supper and the Mona Lisa. But what we're real, why we're really fascinated by him is we're all part of that same creative spirit that informed Leonardo. He just happened to be one of the clearest, purest, most multifaceted antenna or transmitters for that universal creative genius. But it's all around us and we all can get access to it. The way you get access to it will be different than Leonardo. But we can use his example as maybe the person who most embodied the expression of human talent and the transmission of the creative force of the universe as, as an inspiration for each of us to do that in our own unique way. So then, then the fun part was taking the inspiration of the principles, which I just I got from reading his notebooks over and over again and saying, what's he trying to teach us? And then say, okay, what are the actual practices for embodying these principles? And so that's, that's what's led to the book going strong after 25 years. And uh, people still call me up all the time. You teach my team how to think like Leonardo. <laughs> well, it, it was Leonardo who said the five senses are the minister of the soul. He opened up to all of the different senses to allow those things that are right in front of us all the time. Um, but he was able to, to see them and feel them a, a bit clearer. And that's one of the things I appreciate, right? Like so many times we can we can look at some of these geniuses and it's just like, that. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can tap into that, but he makes the the mundane or the everyday, he, he shows you through his notebooks what we're all capable of. Uh, that's one of the things I loved. How, how, how did you change what you do day to day based on just the amount of depth that you went into uh, around studying Leonardo? Wow. Well, that's, uh, I mean, it's trans it transformed my, my life because for a couple of reasons, I mean, one was just simply that I realized in the beginning of my career, I was invited around the world to talk to companies about how they could be more creative and innovative. And this was through a friend of mine, a guy named Tony Buzan, who was the originator of mind mapping and a, a brilliant multifaceted teacher. And it turns out that Da Vinci was one of his heroes too. So we'd, we'd be in Australia leading a 
five-day retreat in the outback for a group of Australian executives. And then we were in Japan together at, at a Miyoko Kogan at a ski resort leading a retreat for a group of executives. This is in the early 1980s. And we would tell stories about Leonardo because he was a hero for both of us. And I noticed that the groups always resonated with those Da Vinci examples. So in, in the early 90s, I was speaking for this group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. They're company presidents from all over the world. And they invited me to give a talk about creativity and innovation at one of their big events in Washington, D.C. But I knew they were having an event in Florence, Italy, which is my favorite city, along with Kyoto in Japan. And I really wanted to get invited. So I pictured what might happen. I pictured that the head of education for Florence might approach me and say, you know, if we were to invite you, what would you do? And I figured he'd say something like, we want something really special because I imagine a lot of people wanted to go to Florence. And that's exactly what happened. I finished my talk in DC. Gentleman approaches me, says, if we were to invite you to Florence, what would you do? He said, well, we want something really special because everyone wants to go to Florence. So what really happened was a spontaneous, creative moment. I just looked him in the eyes. I said, how about how to think like Leonardo da Vinci? And he said, can you really do that? And I said, sure. So then I had a few months to make it up yeah. <laughs> and go give a keynote to this very demanding group of company presidents, one of the toughest audiences in the world. But it was perfect because I'd been so fascinated by this. And now I, I, I said, okay, I'm going to give this keynote to this group of very critical people. So I, I, literally, I went to his birthplace. I went to the place he died. I read the notebooks over and over again. And the it all just emerged. It all just became obvious. There weren't, you know, people say, how'd you come up with seven principles? I tried to find an eighth and there wasn't one. And I tried to consolidate down to six and I couldn't do it because there are seven principles for thinking like Leonardo that just seemed clear to me as I went through his notebooks over and over again. And as you might imagine, these are principles are principles of universal wisdom. If you go back to you know, Socrates and Plato, the Da Vinci principles, we could abstract them from the work of Socrates and Plato. We could probably abstract them from the work of Lao Tzu and Confucius because universal wisdom is universal wisdom. And if it's wisdom and it's truth, it's by nature universal. But then we might put Chinese expression to it. We might put Greek expression to it. In this case, we happen to have Tuscan Italian expression, which has a particular resonance with a lot of people uh, in our world over the last 40 or 50 years, fortunately. So this was a way of expressing universal wisdom in, in a way that was true to Leonardo. That was, you know, I, I worked with Da Vinci scholars to say, I want to be sure that what I'm sharing here is, is accurate in the framework of, of 
Leonardo's life and work, uh, as well as being resonant archetypally to this universal wisdom, but then also really practical in terms of how do you really do this? Show me what, you know, what can I do differently today? And so the good news is it, it, it kind of, it did give me a sort of systematic approach to applying this universal wisdom because I, I practiced and tested out every single exercise that's in the book. And I still do a lot of them and I do them with my coaching clients. So a lot of my coaching clients go through the seven principles with me guiding them. And I've been doing this now you know, for a really long time so I can help them accelerate their Da Vinci, their Da Vinci journey. So it's become a template and a, a, a language system for accessing universal wisdom. Yeah, Mike, what I appreciate is you take theory and, and go to practice, right? Like, how do you actually apply these things? That's what I appreciate. The book is just loaded with exercises that are incredibly helpful um, in being able to do that. Uh, I, I want to hear your uh, pronunciation of these. Can you can you actually run through the seven principles? Sure. Obviously, we won't be able to expand too far into them, but I, I, would, I would love just to hear them. Uh, if you, I will say them, but I want you to do your best to to follow along, okay? So I'll say it and you you, you do your best right. so we can work together so you can embody the principles, okay? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so curiosità. Curiosità. Oh, molto bene. Dimostrazione. Dimostrazione. Oh, you're doing so well, right? So curiosità obviously means curiosity. Mm -hmm. Dimostrazione, demonstration, show it in your own experience. Sensazione. Sensazioni. Ex sazione. Sazione. Ex yeah. The gesture helps. The gesture. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll get the arms involved. <laughs> Sfumato. Sfumato. Oh, perfetto. Arte scienza. Arte scienza. Corporalità. Corporalità. And connazione. Connazione. Molto bene. So those are the seven principles. Right? Be curious. Think for yourself. Sharpen your senses. Embrace the unknown and your intuition. Balance art and science, logic and imagination. Balance body, mind, and spirit. And look for connections that you haven't seen before. That's the simplest way to share the seven now that we've learned them in La Bella Lingua, Italian. Well, believe me, listeners, I'm going to have all that linked up. Uh, you can also see those seven in the show notes. But Michael, real quickly, I would love to know uh, when you mentioned that opportunity to speak and, and what you were going to speak about, you threw out well, how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. And I'm just wondering around uh, another one of those tensions around the courage you have to do something like that, to take that on wrestling also with self-doubt entering the unknown. I'm just wondering how you've navigated the internal courage throughout your life. Wow. I don't know. You probably have to ask the people who've been around me mm -hmm. because my answer is that's just my nature. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've never, I've never had a job. I've never, nobody's ever paid my health insurance. Uh, I've, 
managed to earn a really good living by doing the things that I love doing the most. I mean, do you know anybody else who's gotten paid to go around the world and teach people from IBM how to juggle? I, I, can't, I can't say I do. <laughs> yeah. or, or, I mean, one of my greatest passions in life is, is wine. And I created this team building program based around wine and poetry and clients bring me all over the world and pay me to drink wine. <laughs> that, that, that's not a bad gig at all, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I suppose, I suppose there's been times in my life where I've thought, are you crazy? <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, you have, no job, no salary, no health. You know, I've had a few difficult times in my life. I, ha I had to have a knee replacement, hip replacement. Things were pretty rough. It was hard to, I couldn't travel. I couldn't work. And there's no, you know, there's no money coming in if I don't do it. There's, so then there's no health insurance unless I already paid for it out of the money I earned from yeah. being a solopreneur. And it, so there are a few moments I thought like, Maybe you should have thought this, <laughs> but not really because it just, it's my nature and it's worked out really well. And I'm, I'm diligent and careful. So I always, I, I invested and saved enough so that even when I was in the hospital for my knee and my hip, I could pay all my bills and, and didn't really have to worry about anything. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that's what we said before is it's, it's one thing to be spontaneous and free flowing. It's another thing to actually say, okay, if I don't have a job and I don't have health insurance, how much money do I actually need to have invested? And I, I mean, I set goals for when I was 35, 40, 45, 50, 50, each every five years. And hallelujah, they've, they've, I've been blessed to have them come true. Michael, this has been a, a ton of fun for me. I, I was saying a little while ago, one of the questions I ask is if you could sit down with anyone dead or alive, who would you love to do that? Let, let's assume you would say Leonardo. What are you going to ask him though? Well, the funny thing is it wouldn't be Leonardo. Who would you go with? Uh, only because I've already sat down with him. Yeah, with through the notebooks. I, and, I've, already had a, I've had a very intensive conversation with him and I've already done pretty much all of the great geniuses of history that I'm interested in. I've had, you know, I've written books about Thomas Edison. I wrote a book about 10 of history's greatest geniuses. Uh, and I've gone deeply into those historical genius minds. And I've also contemplated, uh, you know, to me, mostly the real true answer is I would sit down with Ramana Maharshi. Uh, I would sit down with the great spiritual geniuses. And then you don't even have to talk or ask them any question. You're just in their presence. But the great thing is you can just attune to them anytime anyway, so I don't even need them. So I probably, you know, if it's going to be like a dinner party, I was going to have one guest over, probably be Jerry Seinfeld, because I just want to talk about comedy. <laughs> I, he, believe me, he, he is up there. I would love, love right? to be able to sit down I would with do, I would do I would do comedians in cars uh, having coffee, except he would be the guest and I yeah, would be right. the host. That's what I <laughs> Well, you, you mentioned Eddie Murphy uh, at the beginning of this, and he, I, was, I was recently watching uh, his episode with, with Eddie Murphy in that. 
It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, two uh, two legends, two two very funny guys who, surprisingly enough, got their start uh, at the exact same spot. And they, that to me was just mind boggling. They still have the um, the the slip of the night they were both in the same club to start. But uh, Michael, like I said, this has been too much fun for me. I, of course, am going to have your work, your website, michaelgelp.com, all your books linked up. But anything else you want to leave the listeners with? Any place you want them connecting with you? Thanks. Yes. Well, just to let people know that. One of the things we did during the pandemic was to make six and a half hours of high production value, truly world-class production value video of my seminar on how to think like Leonardo so that now people can take the seminar in a self-paced way. So there's information about that at michaelgeld.com, but it's the how to think like Leonardo da Vinci transformational online video seminar and it makes it possible to take the immersive, intensive seminar effectively one-to-one with me guiding you, stop the video, do this, uh, come back. Thank you very much. Here's the next thing. And I'm very pleased with how it's come out, and I'm thrilled to share it with people. So there's info on it at michaelgeld.com. Yeah, that'll be linked up. Michael, the, the video production quality of that is incredible. And then also you give away a bunch of additional freebies with that as well if someone signs up, which I think there's some tremendous value uh, in there as well. Um, so yeah, check that out. But uh, Michael Gelb, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you. So much fun. Really love talking to you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.